This sermon is brought to you by Shofar Christian Church. We hope that you will be blessed by this message. Our audio and video sermons are also available on Shofar TV to download and share. Amen. Man, I want to encourage you guys uh, to continue praying for the teams that are out there. The last team, I think, comes back only on the 20th of July. So it's still a week of people on mission. So at home in your quiet time, let's continue to pray for the teams out there. Um, I just want to say welcome to those of you who are visiting us for the first time. Maybe you don't know who I am. My name is George. Well, George Nicholas Lawrence, to be more precise. Um, I'm the young adults pastor, and I think the church is going to start getting tired of this, but I describe my position as um, what it means to be a young adults pastor is if you're not studying anymore and you're not pushing a pram yet, then you fall under, then you fall under me, then I'm your pastor. Um, just um, for those of you who maybe don't know the bathrooms, if you go through that door over there, the men's on your right and the women's on your left. I think it's important to know where the bathrooms are. And then um, we've got people streaming, uh, joining us via Facebook, and I want to welcome you guys. And then let's just all be honest that most of us are thinking and wondering now, if you haven't checked on your phone yet, what either the Wimbledon score is or the World Cup cricket final score. Um, this is why I left my phone down there and I disconnected from the internet. Um, I don't need distractions now. Um, but yeah, I'm super excited to share with you guys tonight something that the Lord has been doing in my heart. Um, I think it's, a, it's an interesting thing for me to discover what it means to be in ministry full-time, to be a pastor full-time. I, I don't know exactly what that means yet. But the reality of it is that I have to do with saved people about 90% of the time. People who love Jesus. And it's amazing. It, uh, it encourages me and builds my faith. Um, but I don't get a lot of face time or a lot of time with people that are not in church. That are not saved. That don't know Jesus. And that are maybe looking for Jesus. Maybe they don't even know that they're looking for Jesus yet. So the past while, I've been looking um, introspectively at how can I involve myself in getting to people who don't know Jesus? Um, what are the places and the areas where I can get myself involved to share the love of God? And, and that's what we're going to talk about a bit tonight, is loving your culture, tent makers and philosophers. And I think the the title will make a bit more sense as we go along. Okay, so we're going to start off by reading 18 verses out of Act 17. Are you guys ready for that? Okay, we're going to read through it once, just completely, so that we have an idea of just what is happening in the story. Just a bit of background. Paul um, was ministering in Thessalonica, Things went great there ministry-wise, but popularity-wise, it didn't go so great. They um, really went for him and wanted to kill him, so he fled to Berea. In Berea, things went great. Faithful stewards of the word listened to what he had to say, but the people from Thessalonica chased him 
in Berea and he had to flee again and he flee, flee, fled to Athens. And this is where we find um, Paul um, and we're going to pick up from verse 16. So if you guys want to follow either on the screen or on your phone or in your Bible, more than welcome to do that. Now while Paul was waiting for them, this is Silas, um, I mean sorry, Timothy and Barnabas. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be preaching to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought in him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you bring some strange, strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time on nothing except telling or hearing something. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet actually, he's not far from each one of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought to not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but he now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, amongst whom also were Dionysius and the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, and the others with them. <laughs> it's a lot of scripture. But I think it's so important to read big pieces of scripture so that we can get the whole picture. Okay, right back to the top, verse 16. So Paul pitches up in Athens. I'm just going to jump straight into it. I'm not going to waste any time. Um, how much time do I have, by the way, just so that I can, more or less, more than enough, okay. Okay, luckily I don't speak for that long, I think, but we'll see. Okay, now, um, verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, 
His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, I want to ask... almost went ahead of myself. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. I find myself walking through Stellenbosch. Um, I go for a lot of coffees um, all over town, see people. I do my shopping at the Boert Spa. Um, I... I sometimes just walk through the botanical gardens and I see a lot of people, um, just people that I don't know, just random strangers. I see a lot of homeless people. I walk, I drive through town at night and I see students that are really um, drunk and really lost and it looks like they're in a lot of, or in a deep place of chaos. And I find myself hardened and cold towards this reality. That people in our town are literally, because of the cold, dying. I find myself cold towards people who don't have food because I've become so accustomed to just seeing them. And I want to ask you a question is, when last were you provoked? When last were you in anguish? When last did you um, have a deep sense of care towards someone in Stellenbosch as you walked past them. The interesting thing is, is that it doesn't say that Paul went to Athens on a mission. It said he was waiting for his friends. And I find myself that when I'm waiting, I'm scrolling. Facebook, Instagram, sports feeds, Messages, not all, it's, it's not bad stuff. But while Paul was waiting, his spirit was provoked within him because he saw the city was full of idols. Now, the important thing to note about this is that we can't produce this compassion. We can't produce this feeling of being provoked or being... Um, in anguish over what's happening around us. Like we don't just want to be radical for the sake of being radical. But it's, it's a character thing. You see, Paul had followed God and had grown in intimacy with God for a long time before he was provoked. This what Paul is feeling is because he's intimate with God. Because character has been built in for him to see where there is need. For him to see where there is a gap for the gospel. This distaste comes from character that is produced from intimacy with God. And intimacy comes from spending time. I can't expect me and my wife to have an intimate relationship if I'm gone for six months of the year. And just come back and, and we're just immediately going to be intimate. We need to spend time together to be intimate. And obviously we become intimate with God by spending time in the Word. Spending time in prayer. Spending time in worship. Fellowshipping together. 
It's a living relationship with God. That came over a lot harder than what I thought it would. But there's hope. There's hope. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Paul's custom was to walk into a place, walk into a town, walk into a city and to go straight to the synagogue and go and meet with his people, with the Jewish people, the people of Israel. And he would um, teach and preach out of the Torah who Jesus was, and he would share the gospel with them um, at every opportunity that he, that he got. And our perception, well, my perception at least, is that Paul literally just went into a place, um, a town, and he would go into the synagogue, stand and preach, share who Jesus is out of the Torah, out of the scriptures, and then he would go and be like, okay, job done, and he would mission over to the marketplace, and he would find some other platform, and he would start preaching to the Gentiles or to whoever was there, and he would just like go for it. And I'm like, Lord, this is so hard. Like, you know, it's easy for me to stand here and preach to you guys, because um, hopefully most of us believe, and we're here seeking for God at least. But like, if I had to go into... Um, you know, let's say Route 44 market on a Saturday and go and stand and just take the mic from the guy who's doing a live performance and just start preaching the gospel. You know, like, I'm like, Lord, I, this, is, this is too much for me. You know, I'm an introvert. Um, I don't qualify. Um, and I'm actually a bit shy and maybe on the day my throat is a bit sore. But the reality is that most of the places that Paul stayed, he stayed for quite a while because he invested in the churches that were planted. Um, and getting money from the church wasn't a big thing for him, so he made a living by making tents. And doing a bit of research, I discovered that in the, when you look at the um, in history, that in a historical perspective, that Paul would sit and he would make tents. He would, do, he would make his living. And while he's making his living, making tents, he would converse with whoever would come in. If someone wanted to buy a tent from him, if someone wanted him to make something, whoever, the guy that was walking along the street, as he was doing his business, he would be sharing the gospel. He would be sharing the good news. And I was like, wow, this is actually doable. Now, unfortunately, in my case, all the people at my work are saved and love Jesus. Fortunately, but in another sense, unfortunately. Um, and ask us another question is, do we believe that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe? Because if you do, and if we do, then we need to share the gospel in our workplaces, in our sports teams, in our schools, in our residences. And we're going to talk a bit about how, what does that look like? What does it look like that day by day I share the gospel, I live the gospel? Is everybody with me? Give me a thumbs up if you're with me. Great. Okay, let's go on. Verse 17. 
Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So, just a a brief background. An Epicurean is someone that's like an agnostic. They... Their point in life is to make life as pleasurable now as possible. So they believe there is a higher power, but they want to make life as pleasurable as possible now and avoid pain at all costs because there is no afterlife. There's no life after death. The Stoics, on the other hand, are more like pantheists. So they believe that there's many gods and they believe that... um, Everything is God, and God is everything, and in fact, we are God. Um, very briefly, and in layman's terms, that's what, that's what they believe. And these guys, now in verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. And the Areopagus is a, is a hill. Some would know it as Mars Hill, where the God, the Roman God Mars, um, dedicated the hill unto him. So... This is where 30 of the cleverest minds in the world came together. Philosophers, intellectuals came together. And these Epicureans and Stoics, um, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. So they're kind of like, this guy's saying a whole lot of weird stuff um, about this, you know. Oh, just something to note is that this message or this sermon or speech that Paul is giving, these are the main points of this of, of this sermon. So it, it might be short in terms of length for us, but the way that they recorded it would have been the main points would have written down and he would have expanded on every point. Um, so just to take that in mind so he's now preaching a lot of stuff and they're like okay we need to know what this what this is that you're talking about Um, I think it's in verse 21 it says now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time on nothing except telling or hearing something specifically something new verse 22 so Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So he starts off by saying, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. And he says, so he's not saying it's a good thing or it's a bad thing. He's just saying, like, I've noted this. I've seen that you are very religious. And also I've observed um, the objects of your worship. And I've observed this, this altar with an inscription to the unknown God. And we, we stand on this side of the story. So we know what Paul is going to say. And we know that he's going to use this unknown God to... Um, preach Yahweh, Jesus, in, in, in their context. But um, 
for them, for the Epicureans and the Stoics, the unknown God was, it was like a scapegoat. So they believed in many gods, but in case they missed one, in case they kind of didn't know about a new God or they couldn't think of one more to create, they created this unknown God. So that if anything um, would go wrong or anything could like didn't go the way that they planned, then they would just fall back on this unknown God. Oh, no, it's the unknown God that is punishing us. Or, you know, um, so it's like almost like a scapegoat. So they created this God because all the gods that they have are created. And we're like, oh, yes, that's so bad. But if we apply it to our culture, I mean, an example, or we just first say, you know, that our attention and our devotions are often very divided. I saw it today by myself. I'm busy, and I've got my sermon, like, worked out, and I'm just typing the, um, the PowerPoint. And I think, oh, let me see what's happening on the cricket. So I put it on my phone, and I look, oh, this is an intense moment in the cricket, so I put it there. And I'm watching and I'm typing, and I'm typing this while I'm watching cricket. Our attention and our devotion is often divided. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> take note. Phone in the room, <laughs> go back to your study and go and write down. But our attention and our devotions are so divided that we often, and most, I would bet most of the time, unintentionally, we see our God, Yahweh, our Lord, we see him as the unknown God. You see, we need to write an exam, so we cry out to God, we need him. We're stressed or we're depressed or we're in a place, in a deep hole, we cry out to God because we need him. We need breakthrough, so we cry out to God. And what we slowly but surely start doing is we start cultivating a culture where we come to God for what he has and not for who he is. You see, we're just like the Epicureans and the Stoics. Most, many times. Not all the, all the time, but many times. And this is that character thing that I was getting back to. That I'm getting back to. Is that we, when we spend time with God, it's for who He is, not for what He can give to us. Yes, He, um, he gives us amazing things. He's given us the greatest gift of eternal life, to know the one and only true God. He's given us the greatest gift. But Vilio said it so, so beautifully last week. He, he asked us, did your pain or your sin or even the devil die on a cross for your sins? For you. Obviously not. It's Jesus Christ. And he died so that we can have relationship with him. So oftentimes we put God in that unknown box, just like a, a scapegoat, in case things don't go according to my plan. See, I've got my plan, my five steps, my path that I want to lead. And if it doesn't go according to that, then I'll cry out to God. But how about we align our hearts, we align our lives to the Word of God? 
Verse 24. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He says God is knowable. There is one God and this God created everything. And God is self-sustaining. He doesn't need our service to exist. Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And this piece is so beautiful for me. It's something that I've been meditating on for a while, but it's a whole sermon for another time. But just something that, um, that is so beautiful for me is, is a, a doctrine called common grace, where God allows everything in this world, and you'll have heard me talk about this before, but God allows everything in this world to live and to have breath. And we need to know that. Whether you're saved or not saved, whether you're for God or against God, He allows you to have breath in your lungs. He allows the fruit to grow on the trees. He allows the rain to fall so that we can have a harvest to eat. And it's not because of our deeds, but it's because He is a good God. And He's created this world in such a way that before we even knew God existed, if we look around us, verse 26, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. So this time, our time on earth, and the place that we live is designed in such a way that they should seek God, that we should seek God. And not just seek Him, but seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. God has designed the world in such a way that we can feel our way and find our way towards Him. And He goes one step further and He says, yet He is actually not far from each one of us. Because out of experience we know that God pursues us. Because he sent his son to die. He didn't ask you to come running. He sent his son to die on the cross. To forgive your sins. To give you eternal life. To reconcile you to the father. It goes on and says. For in him we live and move and have our being. And as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So, Paul is kind of setting them up here. He's kind of setting the stage because like a geekish point is he's using a framework from that of Plato to kind of 
share this. So Plato had a framework of giving a speech and Paul is actually using this framework um, to present the gospel to them. So he's kind of like bringing them along and he, and he says to them, you know what? You guys believe in a lot of gods, some of you, some of you believe there's a higher being. But don't you think, this is now like my interpretation, my, um, what I could imagine Paul saying. Um, he says, you know, you guys believe different things, but both of you believe that there's a higher being. But don't you think that if, so you guys serve many gods, but certainly they come from somewhere. And this unknown God that you worship, I'm actually telling you that he's the ultimate God. He's the only God. There's actually only, only one God because he created everything. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And if he's the Lord of heaven and earth, don't you think he created the world in such a way that we would feel our way towards him and maybe find him? And I can see them almost being like, that, that makes sense. We're, we're with you. And he's like, but he's, but he's not far from you. He's actually near you. Because your own poets have actually said, we are indeed his offspring. So these images and these idols and these altars that you guys have made, these temples even, that you go to to worship these gods, the ultimate God doesn't actually need them. Because he's self-sustaining. And there's nothing that we can create from our minds or in art that can represent God. But we are actually image bearers of God. And everybody's, I can just see everybody like, okay, we're following you. This all makes sense. We're, we're with you. Then he goes on and he hits them with a, Right hook. Verse 30 says, The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined them and believed, among them, whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and the woman named Demaris, and others with them. So he's brought them with all the way. He's like, come, come with me. Come. Okay, yeah, yeah, come, come with me. And he's like, but this is the truth. It says, God now, God now calls all men everywhere to repentance. And the reason why he calls all men to repentance is because he is coming to judge the world in righteousness. He's coming to judge the world in righteousness through Jesus. Because Jesus is actually the Son of God. And the confirmation that he is the son of God is that he is actually risen from the dead and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Paul comes right bang on, head on, 
against their culture, against their way of doing life. Because Paul wasn't adding Jesus to their list of gods, but rather saying that all gods outside of Yahweh, I'm just using Yahweh because it distinguishes between God and gods, capital letter and small letter. All gods outside of Yahweh are powerless. He says to the Stoics who believe in many gods. To the Athenian culture, the Roman culture that they had, he says that Jesus, and not the emperor, is the son of God. Jesus, and not the emperor, is the king. And this completely undermines their way of thinking. Because in their way of thinking, the emperor, so this is a Roman culture, the emperor in Rome, they believed that he was a son of God, the son of God or son of the gods. And he goes right against us and he says, Jesus is the king, not the emperor. Jesus is the son of God. Not the emperor. Jesus is the only God, not your small letter gods. They are powerless and meaningless. And I read this, and I'm like, man, that's really offensive. That's not the best way to bring people to Christ, in my mind. I'm like, why would they believe? Honestly, it's like, I thought of this this afternoon. If, praise the Lord, it's not like this, but if, if, I, was, uh, I was, if I was addicted to gambling and alcoholic, and the only reason why I worked, I don't think I would be in ministry, but the only reason why I worked was to get money so that I can gamble and drink. And I'm married to my wife. I don't think she would have married me, but... <laughs> um, but let's just picture, just, just stay with me, just picture this. And whenever I get home and she has a need to converse with me, she's at a tough day, I tell her, listen here, don't you want to, don't you want to go and Talk to, the, talk to your girlfriends about this. Like, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not really interested. And someone comes along who really loves their wife, really lives a good life, lives by example, lives by the scriptures, comes to me and says, hey man, that's not the way that a husband should act. That's... It's just not right. Your way of living is terrible. We'd be like, who are you? To be honest, I would just be like, who are you? I don't know you. Like, maybe I know what your name is, but who are you to tell me what is right and what is wrong? And I can almost imagine that the philosophers have this kind of reaction. The people hearing the gospel many times in Acts, hearing this, in, I think it's, it's either 17 or the beginning of chapter 17 or 16 where Paul preaches the word and 
the people run to the authorities and they're like, this guy is throwing our world upside down. He's ruining our way of life. We can't raise our children the way we used to anymore. We can't do our business the way we used to anymore because we can't make idols anymore because he says there's no point in making idols. We can't serve the God that we used to serve anymore because he says there's only one God, there's not many gods. I can't treat my wife or my slave in a certain way because of what this guy is preaching. He's flipping my whole world upside down. This is what the gospel does. And I'm like, this is not the best plan. Like, Jesus can give you health, wealth, and riches. That's, that's, that's a better message for me. I'm just looking at the story and I'm like, man, isn't there a better way to do this? Doing a bit of research, um, I found that the gospel being preached was most effectively confirmed by the way that the community lived. The community of faith, those who followed Jesus in the way of Jesus. Because they actually lived as if Jesus was king. Not just believed it in their heads, but they lived according to the way of life that Jesus is king. That the way that they treated each other was with deep love and deep care. The way that they treated others around them was with deep love and with deep care. The way that they treated their enemies was with deep love and with deep care. And the way that the community lived confirmed the preaching of the gospel. And I'm not saying that just the gospel isn't enough. The gospel is the power of God and the salvation for those who believe. Amen. But the confirmation of the gospel is the way that the community lives. I think it's Gandhi who said that he loves the Jesus of the Bible, but he can't relate it back to the church. He says the way that the church acts and what Jesus preached are two different things. And we don't do it intentionally, but I think our attention, our, our object of worship, our focus of devotion is divided so many times. There's um, at the end of Romans 14, Verse 23, I think it's the last verse. We spoke about this in Sal. Oh man, Sal has been blessing me so much. Community, talking about what God is doing in our lives, challenging each other with difficult questions, talking through stuff. It's been blessing me. If you're not in a small group, I urge you to join a small group. We spoke about this. Um, I'd done a bit of study on it. And, it, um, and then I kind of asked him the, the question, what do you think of the scripture? Romans 14 verse 23, it says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. The first time I read it, it knocked me a bit off guard. And we spoke about it and we, and we said, if whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. 
God has given us the word, the infallible word of God. And I'm going to say it a million times. Go and read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Go read the commandments of Jesus. Go and read um, what he commands us, the way that he commands us to live. And you will see that that way of living is meant for human beings to flourish. It talks about difficult stuff, not judging, taking the log out of your eye before you spot the speck in someone else's eye. Loving your enemies, not committing adultery, not physically, but not even in your heart. Don't commit murder, not physically, but not even in your heart. And he goes on and on. He goes for three chapters. He talks about the way that we should live life. It's clear in Scripture. We don't have to guess. We don't have to thumb suck. We don't have to sit with our legs crossed and hope that there will come uh, instruction of the way that we need to live. It's clear in Scripture. Go and read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Write it down if you don't know. If you've never read it, go, go read it. But there's, there's that. And if we live according to that, we live according to faith. Because then what we're saying is we believe that what Jesus commanded us to do is the truth. Then we believe that Jesus is who he says that he is. And we believe that he is the son of God. And then we're living by faith. It's on the one hand. And on the other hand, we live by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? So we believe that we can hear the voice of God. We can hear the Holy Spirit speak to us. And on the 1st of January 2014, I'm going to be very honest and very vulnerable with you guys now. I drank too much. Sinner in the house. I drank too much. Not excessively. I was with my parents and it was New Year's and we just... We just had, I enjoyed the wine too much, I'm going to be honest. I'm not going to try and justify it. The wine tasted too good. And I, and I drank too much. Didn't do anything silly, but I, I knew that I drank too much. And I went to my room that evening. I knew the Lord. And I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, George Nicholas, you will, um, I don't want you to ever drink again. And I was like, yeah, sure. Next morning I woke up and I was like, okay, let's just check again because maybe I was a bit jolly. I was just like, yeah, whatever. And I, and I, and I sat in my quiet time and, and I prayed and I prayed, God, speak to me again if this is really what you want me to do. And I, and I felt a prompting in my spirit of the Lord saying, yes, I don't want you to ever drink again. And I was like, yes, Lord. Because I was so sure that it was God speaking to me. And, I, and I, I asked, and I asked the Lord, I prayed again, and I was like, Lord, why, why not? And I just felt the Lord saying um, that for the position, this was before I wanted to go into full-time ministry, he said the position that you're going to hold in society, the position that you're going to hold in your congregation, um, it's just something that I, a standard of living that I want you to keep up. 
I've been disobedient once, I drank one beer in five years. I was very convicted of sin at the time when I drank that beer. But because I'm living according to that conviction, I'm living in faith. Now, I'm not saying that you guys can't have a glass of wine or drink a beer, but if it's causing people to stumble, reconsider. I don't, I don't mind, but if it's causing people to stumble, beware. But there's certain things that God will convict us of because he's planned the path before you. He knitted you together in your mother's womb. He knows you better than what you know yourself. He has plans for you, a future to prosper, hope. And we need to walk according to the convictions that God lays on our heart together with the word of God. The spirit and the truth need to come together in our lives. It's not one or the other one, it's both. Just one more testimony and then we're going to wrap up. There's, this, there's a scripture in John 6. We all know it really well. Specifically verse 8 the disciples, Jesus and the disciples are ministering on a hill and it's getting late and the people can't go back home to get food. So they need to feed 5,000 people and they don't know what to do. And this little boy comes, I'm obviously paraphrasing the George translation. Um, and this little boy comes with his two fish and his five loaves. And Jesus multiplies it. And, I, and I've heard this story since I was probably five years old. It's a very popular story. But in my second year, uh, Sias asked me if I would go with him to Iran. At that stage, it was the second most persecuted country in the world. I was scared. <laughs> scared because of the danger, because of what it would cost. But more scared because I didn't know anything. And here's this team with these guys that, you know, they're like, to me, they're giants in the faith. Like, they know. They can preach and teach. And they, um, you know, they've been in church for a long time. They've um, went on mission before. And these guys are like my heroes. And here I am, and I'm going along with them. And she has asked us, we must pray for a word for this mission that will sustain us. So I'm take the day out and I'm fasting and I'm praying and I get this John 6 and I read it and I'm like oh that's cool and I put it away and I just keep getting John 6 John 6 John 6 and I read it and I read it and I read it that evening it struck me that the Lord was telling me George Nicholas bring your two fish and your five bread which is completely inadequate but I'm going to multiply I'm going to multiply it. You see, it's not in our own effort. It's not in our own strength that we come to preach the gospel. I can preach and preach and preach at you. But it's going to mean nothing if the Holy Spirit doesn't work in your heart. It's the same in our workplaces. It's the same in our schools. It's the same in our sports teams. In our household. Paul had a living relationship with God. He devoted himself 
to reading the word and to prayer, to fellowship. He built character and he trusted God. And in that he learned to see. Now Paul was an evangelist. Okay, Not all of us are evangelists, but we're all called to evangelize. I cringe when I say it because I'm like, oh, I don't, like it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to step out in faith. But it's the truth. We're all, we're all called to witness. And that can mean many things. For the disciples that weren't preaching the gospel, it was the way that they treated people around them that confirmed the gospel, that confirmed the preaching of the word. Thank you for listening. Remember that our sermon audio and videos are also available on Shofar TV. Go to www.shofaronline.tv to download and share.